0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vector, where we discuss topics, trends, and insights driving the global space ecosystem. I am your host, Kelly Ketis ogborn and today's topic is all about transatlantic space activities. And joining me today will be Dr. Ken Davidian, who is the Vice President of North America for International Space University. Dr. Davidian has 40-plus years of experience in the space sector, including roles at NASA and the FAA. He currently holds key positions at the International Space University, New Space Journal, and Virginia Tech. He's also affiliated with the AIAA and the International Academy of Astronautics. Dr. Davidian has degrees in aeronautical engineering, mechanical engineering, and a doctorate in business administration focused on innovation in space markets. Ken, thank you so much for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Hi, it's great to see you, Kelly.
0: And you hello too. To this topic is a big one, and I think you are the perfect person to come on and really dissect what you're seeing in the ecosystem, and especially across, you know, this transatlantic space. Given your experience in government for a very long time, and seeing how government, our government, governments handle this, and then now working more in the private sector, especially on the academic kind of industry world, and so. As a starting point, I'd love for you to talk a bit about the work that you do at ISU and how you work with both the U.S. and European markets. I think that'll help frame a lot of the other discussion points to follow.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the vice president of North American operations for ISU. Um, My prime goal in life in that position is to create a permanent presence for ISU in North America. Of course, ISU was started in, in North America in the late 80s, but we set up a permanent campus in Strasbourg, France, giving us a footprint in Europe. And mm-hmm. so between Europe and the United States, ISU has had a strong presence. Over the last couple decades, we sort of you know, needed to reestablish our visibility and our presence in the US. So that's what I'm doing here. But like you said, Keeping the channels of communication and the lines of uh, information uh, going between the two continents is very important, but even beyond that, going into Asia, going into Australia, going into India, in the Middle East area, going into Africa and South America, these are all super important to include in the conversation, include in the information transfer that's going on. So, you know, of course, we're keeping our eyes open to see what's happening in all these parts of the world. And like you mentioned, from the government perspective, when I was working for the government, there was a focus at the higher levels, at the levels of markets and above products and technology. So, you know, individual technologies are interesting. How they come together into innovative products is super interesting. And we've got a lot of that going on around the world, but how they affect the higher level, the next level up the markets. This is where it's an appropriate role for government because government shouldn't be picking specific products or companies as winners and losers, you know, but we should be concerned about the benefit to the citizenry that is provided by the different markets, and markets provide such a great benefit to bring international cooperation together. That it's something that the government has been involved in since global trade began. You know, yeah. or at least in this modern area in the mid 1800s. Yeah.
0: You brought up a lot of a lot of really good points that I want to pull some threads on because, as you you know aptly put, it is a very global dynamic ecosystem. Right. When you talk about space. You can't just talk about one government two governments it really has now transcended um that space for that, that that we traditionally started from but beyond the that global piece there's also a lot of competing priorities whether it's a government priority a commercial priority a national security priority and being able to balance the push and pull of who leads who follows i think is a really um important topic and also a difficult topic because it comes with lots of different perspectives and I'm curious from your perspective and let's start from US and Europe and then we can build it out but what have you seen are the differences in operating in those markets and environments
1: you know i think i think that's a great question you know, and it's hard to it's hard to say that one country or the citizenry of one country is more innovative or more productive than the citizenry of any other country or region. So, just assuming that all that is taken as an e- even, you know, equal, then it's a matter of you know how is the polity, the 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 political system, and all the interactions with the political system, how are they affecting what's going on in Europe and mm-hmm. America? And there are two very, very different approaches going on there, as there always has been. In America, we have this super, super well developed capital market, you know, yeah. and, and there's a lot of risk taken that's going on by individuals, you know. And in some books I've read, they've said, well, in America, the, uh, the people who become rich and become investors and get involved with this, they, they, they're new wealth they they earned it themselves and so they're going to spend it whereas in europe the, there are super super wealthy people in europe i mean it's not like there's not enough wealth in europe i mean there's a lot of wealthy people in europe and it again the way it was described in this one text was that well these this is wealth that was inherited so now you have a, a feeling of responsibility of protecting it so you're not going to be not going to be spending it on just because I was a space nut when I was in college you know now that I've made a, bil- a billion dollars you know east doing e-commerce I'm just gonna start a space company they wouldn't do that they'll buy a yacht and they'll park it in Italy somewhere but you know beyond that they're going to be more protective with their capital investment so there's a different philosophy and this is this gets to the point of the, the role of culture and history yeah in economics and markets and and so i think there's a basic cultural difference there so i think the availability of capital i think is one of the major things Again, the terrorist per, you know everything else being taken as equal you know i think capital markets and then government intervention government support is also another one i mean europeans they tend to have a very supportive government the role of government you know has changed over time of course and ESA and Europe is being very supportive of their space industry, but holy cow, in the United States, there's, a, there's it's a it's at a whole nother level kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Let's pull the thread on this cultural piece because it's critical. I mean it's it's central and it's core to all of this and culture for a couple of reasons. I'm gonna make this a two-parter. Because there's definitely the geographic cultures, right? Like just the way that societies have been built, people interact, mentalities toward business, all of that but then there's also the culture amongst governments and industry. And so for companies that are thinking about navigating both. So if they want to do business in the U S they want to do business in Europe, understanding the baseline cultural complexity of how those countries work, but then also the cultural aspect of stakeholders in the government versus stakeholders in the private sector. And how would you advise companies to create strategies for that? What should they be prepared for? What should they think about? Cause that is a whole jumbled mess.
1: It's a, yeah, that's all jumbled mess. And so you're right. You know, talking about the, the cultures of society, you know, there's a path dependence there. History really matters. And the way you approach a problem and the way you frame problems all come from your historical you know, background. And so there's that difference. Mm-hmm. Now, like you said, there, you've got this difference of what I would call institutional logics. You've got a military logic. You've got an industry logic. You've got a market logic. You've got all these. And those are just rules norms and just patterns of behavior that are just sort of accepted. They're not written down necessarily. And you're seeing an influx in the United States, at least of this huge, you know, the United States is unique in, um, in the space sector around the world in that we have a fairly clearly differentiated military, civil and commercial sector yeah, of, the, of the space world. Yeah. And and that doesn't that those divisions don't necessarily exist everywhere around the world. So. We're seeing a blending of the military of the military logic, the civil scientific exploratory logic, and now this commercial logic here in the United States. These things are blending together, and it causes a lot of confusion. All of a sudden, you see a lot of people. You know, it used to be a scientific meeting or you know a conference where there'd be a bunch of entrepreneurs sitting around, now you're starting to see people wearing uniforms sitting around the table mm-hmm. and stuff. So there's a, just a different vibe going on. Right. But I mean, it's it's actually a good thing as well, because these, these blendings of cultures and logics can actually be a, a fertile you know, ground for new innovation. So it's you know n- nothing is purely good or purely bad. And so there's positive negatives. So in terms of what advice would you give to sort of people that are trying to work in this area? It, again, it totally all depends on what segment you're looking at. If you're looking at a segment that involves Earth observation, that verbs, um involves broadcasting, satellite to satellite communications and transmission, there is a very strong component that is non-military, non-civil. Mm-hmm. Military and civil components are still there. And and you look at, for example, the Falcon Heavy launch vehicle. I just asked chat GPT this morning. Um, it's had, I think it said it had seven launches this morning. All seven launches so far, three have been military, two have been civil, and two have been commercial. I yeah. mean, they've got a nice distribution along those types of things. So the launch industry, at least for the Falcon Heavy, is showing that it's got a nice blend of customers. In the satellite communications, satellite uh, tr- uh, broadcasting industry, absolutely a good uh, broad range of customers. So the way you're gonna approach it is you've got three different strategies you can apply. You know, you're gonna you customize it for your, your, for your customer. But if you're in some sort of, you know, high technology, you know, persistent surveillance kind of, you know, technology, you're going to have one customer, you know, Mm -hmm. and 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 so satisfy that customer and just know that you're helping national security or whatever the cause might be. So your strategy is going to be a little bit more focused and you're going to be able to put a lot more energy into that single strategy.
0: I really like the way that you framed it, because generally when you hear when you talk to companies, you talk to individuals that want to enter space, they almost start from the top down and say, well, I want to work with NASA. I want to work with. So they, they go agency driven down to how their strategy is. But your point is flipping it on its head and saying, let the tech vertical, let the capability drive the use case and understand the customer from there, because it's going to be much easier as a matchmaking component.
1: Well, it gives to me, it gives more power to the company. I mean, well, yeah. I, I mean, I understand a lot of people. I mean, I worked for NASA. That NASA was fantastic for me. I worked for them for almost 20 years. The meatball has got a glam factor that Mm -hmm. everybody wants to be associated with. People will sign a a non-reimbursable Space Act agreement just because it has NASA on the top. So that they can say, I work with NASA. You've got a lot of people who work for contractors for NASA saying, Hey, I work for NASA. There's a huge level of legitimacy that comes from working with NASA, working from the US military as well. I mean, Space Force is glamorous these days, and sometimes that glamour is based on budget, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's based just get NASA is just has this worldwide glam factor. And so that's good. But once you start saying I want to work for them, you're saying NASA, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's okay. but that's not commercial in my mind. That's that's a government led program. And so as long as there's some, yeah, you could sell to them and you'll make money through a contract. But, you know, ultimately, it's not a customer. Yeah, uh, it's not a a group, a mass market. It's that's a, a single agency telling you what to build and you you're able to deliver it. So, I mean, it's just a, I do turn it on its head because what I you know, my one of my pursuits in life is to see the true establishment of these mass markets for space activities. And we see it in some areas, like I said, um, satellite communications, broadband stuff. Even if, you know, I would make an argument that even Virgin Galactic, you know, the fact that they sold 650 tickets, not to the same company, not to the same government agency, but 650 tickets. That's a good demonstration of multiple customers. And that's, that's ultimately what's going to provide a, a product that is popular to the to the masses. I mean, there's a real, well, I'll shut up, but there, there's a real reason why governments will tell you what to build versus, you know, markets won't necessarily, you have to figure it out on your own because there's no one entity there defining the requirements.
0: Yeah. And, and that that is that push-pull that I mentioned in the beginning because there's <laughs> government-led, commercial-supported, commercial-led government customer. And, and a lot of what we're seeing, and especially as you know, within the cislunar economy, there is room for both, but a lot of ways the business models are changing in terms of you know um, na- the government now becoming a, a customer as opposed to the integrator for a lot of these capabilities, which I think is important for these companies, as you mentioned, to let themselves run a little bit faster and less inhibited to be able to develop their tech in the way that they see the market evolving to then adjust to their customer sets.
1: Yeah, the problem is they want to survive, you know, they yeah. want to make it to next year. And so to do that, they need some cash and finding the customer is the hardest part. I yep. mean, and this and and we're to be we're there in some segments. We're not there in other segments yet. And so so it's natural once your cash starts running low or your investors start getting impatient, start saying, Fine, where's the low-hanging fruit? Aha, it's DOD, or aha, it's NASA, so let's go there. And so it's this trade-off, this balance of being able to set your own goals versus letting somebody else set your goals. Now, for example, I remember vividly, I was at a conference where we we're the Commercial Orbital Transportation Systems Program, COTS, was just starting up. So this must've been 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, At that time, it was still Orbital ATK was one of the winners, as was SpaceX. Orbital ATK got up to the podium and said, we're so excited to have been selected as a COTS member, member of the COTS program, whatever the government wants, whatever NASA tells us to do, we're going to do it. And then he left the stage. Then a SpaceX person got up and said, we're so excited to be a COTS selectee. We're excited to be a part of this program. We're going to Mars. And if we could stop along the way and go to ISS, perfect. Yeah. And so one definitely had a goal that was not government driven. The other one was, hey, I'm a government contractor, tell me what to do so I can get my paycheck. So there's, again, this is sort of, to me, um, that mindset is one of the dimensions that characterizes a commercial mindset versus just a mindset of a government contractor.
0: No, that's a great analogy. And I want to dive a bit into uh, barriers of entry before we unpack some of these, these more philosophical, you know, framing entities, but let's talk about looking at U.S. companies that want to transition into European markets or European mar- companies that want to transition into U.S. markets. What are the barriers of entry to each? So we talked about just understanding culture and understanding customer sets, but have you seen some other like major barriers, hurdles that companies don't anticipate that then they find out could completely kill their business?
1: I think the ones that they don't anticipate that are that tend out that tend to be huge are the cultural ones. You mm. know, are, uh, 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 so, I mean, there's the obvious barriers that everybody, you know, raises the alarms about being ITAR, primarily yeah. being high levels of capital, especially if you're dealing with human spaceflight, high levels of uh, um, high, low levels of uncertainty, high levels of quality, high levels of mission assurance, obviously. And then just the technological barriers are there as well, because we're talking about high tech stuff. Excuse me, this is not unique. In the business world or in the industry world, there's a lot of industries that have high technology requirements, have high capital requirements, and fly humans around or could be dangerous to the participants, so they need a high level of quality. So space isn't necessarily unique in that one. But so I think those barriers are kind of well-known, and there is so much great work going on in Europe as well as the U.S. in terms of technology development. Of course, we tend to be focused on the technology. The business acumen, I think, is something that is probably better developed in the United States than in Europe. When you look at the factors that go into the how, how likely is it that somebody will start a new business, the likelihood of entrepreneurship, when you look at the socio-political, the historic and the educational requirements that go into that, and these are the three major factors, the U.S. just is stronger. I mean, hmm. the, one of the books I read talked about how the U.S. is unique in that it was a, it was a nation that was founded by a bunch of entrepreneurs, by a bunch of small business owners. You know, we but didn't come out of things. a monarch. Yeah, we, well, that's it. And so they wrote a constitution that yeah. that sort of favored that type of mindset and versus coming out of a royalty or having a bunch of revolutions and doing that sort of stuff. I mean, it's really interesting. And this gets back to the cultural aspect. There's a great anecdote in the early 1900s when aircraft were being designed. The Europeans designed it to be more like a coach with a, a coachman, a, a conductor, a chauffeur. They would create their aircraft to be very stable, very smooth. You know, you know, some and you know, you know, not very maneuverable, and but very stable and safe. Whereas in America, we were designing aircraft, and again, this 1900, that were very unstable, that were highly maneuverable. It was more like the bucking bronco yeah. rather than the the. the this reliable horse. So it's just a cultural mindset of the way that we, we, we do everything artistic or engineering wise, the culture I think is the overlooked kind of thing. And this is, you know, this is a problem because when we start analyzing the industry, we sort to, we sort of minimize the, the impact that culture and non-technical, non-financial dimensions can have on the emergence of technologies on the emergence of products and markets. And we do that to our own hazard of understanding.
0: Yeah, the other it's a great point. And I think the other level of complexity and partially this is cultural and, and it's also based on industry that you're part of, but it comes down to the tolerance of risk and the the understanding that you can fail fast and hard and re-vector and whether that's acceptable or not, um, also does dictate how people work within those societies and systems.
1: Right. And, and moving beyond Europe into the Asian cultures yeah. and things where where risk avoidance is ingrained in your being. So absolutely. I mean, innovation and entrepreneurship is absolutely about risk taking. And, you know, you know, you've seen studies where the countries that have the highest percentage of immigrants, it was Australia. It was, you know, uh, United States. These are the countries where you have high levels, high risk takers. You know, people that have upended their entire lives and their families and their roots and taken them to entirely new continents, started anew. They and lived through it. You know, they feel more comfortable dealing with uncertainty and dealing with risk. And so, and again, try to quantify that. Try to put that into a spreadsheet. You know,
0: <laughs> you can't. And that that's part of the the challenge is you can. You can anecdotally and try to qualify certain aspects of it, but it is hard for people to, there's no data behind it except for the understanding of the things you talk about.
1: So you're absolutely right. There's no data behind it, but that doesn't mean there couldn't be data. And there, right. have, been, there have been advances in experimental methodologies to sort of find proxies for these types of things. You know, looking we were talking about the legitimacy that the NASA meatball gives. It's very hard to quantify legitimacy. I mean, the fact that the Spaceship One spacecraft from Bert Rutan is hanging in the National Air and Space Museum. This is a symbol of legitimacy. This is something that Mm -hmm. makes space tourism legitimate in the eyes of the general public. Quantifying that is very hard. And so there are ways to do it. It's just that there's not enough people that have been trained in those methodologies to be able to bring that to bear into the space sector. So this gets into another rant about we need to sort of broaden the way we analyze the market we can't just rely on a bunch of charts that are numbers that we see every year that are projections and nobody really knows how real they are
0: so i actually i think that when we when we eventually (laughs) post this the tag should be how do you quantify legitimacy should be like the main question that we ask people that's a big question (laughs) It's it's a big question and so i'm curious from your from your opinion though so when we look at the future of space, there does need to be international cooperation and it does oh, it does need to be collaborative. So what kind of systems or parameters or, you know, loose quantification can we put in place to allow companies to not only have access to global markets, but also be competitive and attractive? Because those are two sides of the coin, but they're both baked into this problem.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to be competitive and attractive, obviously, I mean, this is where it's this. This is the innovator's dilemma. Yeah, obviously, you want to meet a customer's need. Um, right. So the, the the clearly say, well, fine. Who's the major customer in Europe? It's ESA. In you know, in in United States, it's NASA or DOD. What do they need? I'll make that. And but again, like I said, that's sort of giving the goal setting dimension of your business away you're saying what do you need i'll build it I, you know as long as it's in thermal conduct uh, you know transducers i can do that and so you just figure that out but but again that's not you're dependent on government funding for that and the mm-hmm. government could absolutely change their mind tomorrow And in which case your business just i mean look what happened to the solid rocket motor industry orbital atk when the shuttle program was canceled in 2011. Demand dropped by 95%. Look at what happened to the aircraft industry when World War I ended. Demand by the Army dropped 95% overnight. You know, that's devastating to an industry. And so if you want some sort of stability and longevity in an industry, which in my world, that's where I'd love to see the space sector going, you don't want to be dependent just on one major customer. You You want to be attractive to many customers. So to answer your question about how do they improve their, you know, allure to customers, you know, the hard part, and this is where we haven't really found the nut yet to crack, is who are those customers creating that market, which is such not an engineering problem. Do yeah. not talk to a physicist or an engineer Completely about the human.
0: <laughs> human. It's, it's and market.
1: It's, it's really hard to do. I mean, the fact that a bunch of us in the 1980s were sold pet rocks, We were sold rocks in in the 1980s. Did you put
0: the the googly eyes (laughs) on?
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, who the heck knew that there was a demand for a rock in a box, you know, but being able to create that demand is is a skill and there's some science behind it. And it's a trick that engineers and scientists do not get.
0: What about regulations? So is there anything that should be created or removed for the ecosystem to reach its potential?
1: so so we want to enable trade we want to enable we we want to remove protectionist trade as much as possible you know i've been reading about how protectionism was implemented in trade from again the early 1800s you know even before that but in the modern era in 1800s and how they kind of fizzled out and we went to this like neoliberal sort of global economic perspective in the 1940s 1950s after world war one we want what we want to do is make sure that we get rid of the the protectionist barriers. And so ITAR is one of those protectionist barriers, right? It's not just tariffs that we're talking about here. Yeah. ITAR, Everybody knows that ITAR is, is creating a problem for free trade. And this is part of the, the, the paradox of working with the military. I mean, between commerce, the commercial logic and the military logic, commercial logic, really wants to be able to sell globally to everybody. And there's a lot of national security benefits to that. I mean, once we see how each country can become richer through trade, you know, there's a lot of national security benefits to that. Then there's a huge incentive not to sort of attack each other. But once you start putting up these protectionist barriers, like our tariff restrictions, restrictions on information or actual taxes on imports and exports, this is where, you know, now it becomes a little bit more interesting to go out and conquer the other you know, the other entity to bring them within the fold. So, you know, so obviously there's been a huge move to move ITAR, um, to remove a lot of items from ITAR. It's a difficult process. It's a long time, you know, time taking process. There's a lot of good reasons not to. And sometimes those political and national defense reasons outweigh the commercial reason. So it's and this is something that I'm sure is not just unique to the United States, but of course, it backfires all the time. Right. We put a we we put up itar restrictions, itar free equipment becomes available on the market so that people can buy it without having to worry about it. In the United States in the early 60s, we refused to fly a French satellite on an American rocket. One of the first commercial what would have been one of the first commercial launches and so in response to that, France developed their own launch vehicle. That's where Ariane came from. So these protectionist kind of policies tend to backfire. And so they're politically politically expedient. But in the long run, they have their real
0: issues. And I think there's a lot of culture baked into those as well, because to your point about um, trust and, and comfort, right, and, and all of these things, as we're moving toward a more global environment with more players, how do you allow for free markets to grow and and to and to evolve while also giving comfort to governments from a national security perspective or from an ip protectionist perspective and it's i think it's going to take time but it should be part of the conversation because to your point that could it it may stifle innovation but it could also stifle collaboration and the ability to work together toward these broader eventualities
1: right right i mean you know there's a lot of interesting stuff that's been talked about on this subject since the mid 1800s i mean <clears throat> none of this is new and it turns out that the united states has a huge amount of capital that's available we have we have a great labor force you know very uh, innovative and we have a lot of land and space to work with you know and, and capital in europe is a little more constrained i think they probably got similar levels of labor availability whether or not they're turned on to innovation and risk taking is a different matter. And the level, the amount of space they have to work with is just a lot more limited. So I think they're going to be, you know, people that have ample resources like the United States, we're going to be very much more interested in free trade. Yeah. People, organizations that have scarcer Resources, they're going to be more interested in protectionist policies, and this is something called the Stolper-Samuelson model, and this comes from you know the early 1900s, but it seems to explain pretty darn well, you know, when a country will favor free trade over protectionism, and so you know it, it, we can look at these, but they're, they're like you said, a lot of this is cultural, and some of this is kind of hard to to modify.
0: Yeah. So beyond the, you know, regulations and sort of market conditions that we talked about, there is a a question that came in from the audience about educational methodologies within the space industry, as you're looking to broaden markets, and they want to know from your perspective, if there's any unconventional fields that you think provide new and valuable perspectives that should be pulled in for this evolving ecosystem.
1: Oh, absolutely! Oh man, who that must have been my 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 paid my paid informant, you know? Because it's a
0: softball most, question from one of
1: yours. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if so, it is actually. So, so in terms of so instead of educational methodologies, because that start to me that's talking about pedag- pedagogy and ways to talk about. I'm mm-hmm. going to replace that phrase with what academic perspectives do we need more in the space industry as we seek to broaden the market? I am so glad. So right now we we tend to look at markets from an economic perspective and this is going to all be based on the the fable or the parable of the six blind people around an elephant right we we tend to look at markets from an economic perspective we have a technological perspective that we look at markets we're looking at again the technologies the products more so and then a little bit at the markets so we have a technological perspective we have an economic perspective that kind of looks at the finances as well as the technology and i would say that we tend to look at it also from a policy perspective so maybe a political economy so there's a third blind men we need more blind men around the table and so there's this broad broad field sometimes it's called management sometimes it's called organization theory where there are multiple perspectives in that and economics is one of those uh, perspectives within org theory but it's the only one of the, all the perspectives that's considered purely rational meaning that mm. they use the the scientific method they use is based on the same scientific method process that you'd follow for a physical science like yeah. physics like if i'm going to measure the acceleration due to gravity every time i drop this pen you would use a certain style of scientific method of you know testing the hypothesis and all this you could still use the scientific method when it comes to social systems, but the problem is it's unlike the acceleration due to gravity, the social system is going to change every time you take a measurement. And this is uh, you know, part of this is the Hawthorne effect that we saw in the 1940s. It's just once the results of a, an analysis come out of research comes out, the system can modify itself because it's a social yeah. system, it's adaptive. So you, you can't use the same strict tenets of the physical science, scientific method you need a, a little bit of a different type of scientific method to follow still scientific still rigorous still hypothesis testing but a little bit different and economics doesn't do that economics uses the same scientific method as for the physical sciences which is fine and the, like i said i just quoted the stop stolper samuelson model there's a lot of economic models out of there that are really really good and really really robust but They're not great. So to bring in things like history, like culture, like societal changes, these are things that need to be brought in from these other non-rational or what they call natural perspectives of org theory. Some of it is power independence. Some of it is cognitive realization. Some of it is technological. Some of it is networks and population ecology. You know, there's a whole evolution. There's a whole lot of different perspectives that we can bring to bear. And so, inviting those people to our conferences, inviting people with those perspectives to our meetings, um, inviting those people to write reports and provide an analysis is something that we could be doing. I was just at Ascend. I had a panel talking about this paradox between the military and the commercial logic. And so I invited somebody from the Academy of Management um, to, who knows space, who's written about space, so they're not a total outs- outsider, but they know org theory. But yep. they've studied these things from, yeah. a, not, from a, a perspective that is a great complement to, um, to economics and political economy. So we need to just add the number of blind people around the elephant that we're using. So that's kind of one, another one of my missions in life.
0: Yeah, I mean, but it is really core because you even with the, you know, with your taxonomy of the space economy project, trying to quantify as much as you can these other industries that are spinning in, spitting out that people might not immediately consider being part of space, but are just as critical to its growth and scalability. Well, and that's right, because the
1: economic perspective So my taxonomy has got like 28 different industries or what social scientists would call communities that are part of it. And so the core space industry is going to be the space, the space ports, the launch sites the launch vehicles and the things that go up into space, the satellites, the depots the whatever, the probes. So you've got, the, that's the core, but of course there's, there's ground support equipment, there's flight support equipment, there's yeah. lawyers and accountants, there's governmental stuff. So so the economist and the economic perspective is gonna look primarily at the financial relationships that are drawn between companies uh, within these industries and industry segments to other companies in other industries and industry segments. But there's a whole lot of relationships that are non-transactional, that are just purely relational. Like when I go and talk to my government, I don't take stacks of $100 bills you know, in retaliation for legislation. I'm there to educate and inform when I work with trade organizations, when I work with other international organizations. There's all these non transactional things which are not included in any economic model. So we need to they play a critical role in the emergence of these types of sectors that we're talking about, but they're not really included in our current current perspectives. So that taxonomy is it's not quantified yet. It's again, we're just trying to draw yeah. lines around mm-hmm. you know, what makes our analysis make sense. You know, I wrote a paper that talked about what is commercial, what is not based on theory of change, motors and stuff. But in the second paper on that series, it was about quantifying it. How do you, and we call that operationalizing it. How do you operationalize this model? How can I take data? And so you know, that second paper actually did try to quantify that. And none of this is be all end all. What I love about business and the social sciences is there is no right answer. There are multiple right answers. So it almost means there's no wrong answers, and there's a couple, but there are multiple right answers and there are so many dimensions to the problem that you can't just assume away. So because you have so many dimensions, there are many, many possible solutions. So it's all good. We need more people talking.
0: To and to them. that point, I think a critical strategy to be able to engage the blind men, as you mentioned, is really one, knowing the right questions to ask, to pull the right. perspectives from them, and also going into the conversation as with intellectual curiosity and not with this assumption that we already know anything and you need to fit into our rigor because if you're really going to get their perspectives, you need to know what's going to be the most beneficial and what you're willing to change on your end to have it be more effective and more broad. And I think that's the, the problem because to your point, we there's so many different personalities and ways of doing business and cultural pieces that you have to take a step back and be like, maybe we don't know everything, so let's figure out how to collectively move forward.
1: And and like you said, to get the bet to make the most of that, you need to know what questions to ask. So you need yeah. to be an informed discussant. So I'm actually in the process of trying to, you know, how ChatGPT, the paid version, has just added these new capabilities to right. modify and customize your own apps. So I'm creating an organization theory in space GPT right now. Of that course, takes you all, are. <laughs> that takes that takes all the concepts from the Oxford Handbook of Organizational Change and Innovation, and we'll put the, will relate them to current events in the space industry. So That's on my cool. possible research channel, you should start seeing some things, which some of it's going to be purely generated by ChatGPT. Some of it's going to be generated by me, but it's all led by this organization theory kind of perspective and how it relates to different current events in space. So we're working on trying to bring that perspective and at least start some discussions You know, in that type of domain.
0: It's so important can- because, yeah. yeah, I mean, we have to evolve our way of thinking. We're right we're building a new economy, a new ecosystem on a old framework. And partially, I mean, that's where we started, right? Our our space industry grew and is massive and strong because of that framework. But the way that we need to evolve in the future is going to just look very different. And so we need to leverage our strengths, but pivot in some critical areas to actually grow. And I think that's a really good place to start for what you're building.
1: Yeah. And we don't have to, we could absolutely do it the way we did it. And it'll be limited to what it is, you know, what the government wants it to be, or it can grow beyond our wildest dreams and wildest expectations. If we try new things and we figure out what works and we go that way. So it's, it's a conscious choice. I mean, and so it's, it's, and it's not easy. And so this is going to be an interesting.
0: So in our last couple minutes together, I want to follow up on that our wildest dreams, right? So ah. if we if we are able to put these parameters in place, you know, include the right people to the table, evolve in the way that is necessary to evolve. Let's take about a 10 10 to 15 year time horizon. So what technologies or verticals do you think have the most promise for business opportunities?
1: That's a great question and so the what there are certain verticals there are certain markets right now that are doing very well. And so the satellite communications, the beaming signals from satellites, whether it's remote sensing or entertainment, whatever, let's just assume that's there. So I'm not even going to. Is that going to grow another 100%? No, because it's so large already, it's going mm-hmm. to be very hard to do that. So you're not going to get the, the huge gains that you'll be able to see from small, currently small markets. They could grow 300, 400% because they're so small right now. And some of those I really think space tourism or point to point travel, um, I think it's going to be big again, number one you can't assume that the future is going to be a repeat of the past. That's the way you sort of predict current market. And we we don't want the future to be a repeat of the past. So that's why these are new markets. The future won't be repeats. So to me, there's a really good signal, a strong signal of high demand from that 650 tickets sold from Virgin Galactic. And when you see what Blue uh, Blue Origin is doing with New Shepard, what Space Perspectives is doing with their balloon carried vehicle, I think there's a huge. Yeah, it's, it's And it looks super fun so those are all super strong signals that there's a demand for that and people will pay for that i mean when you look at people have got money out there and they're willing to spend it when you look at the the fact that a hundred and twelve thousand dollar model s is like kind of outselling a bunch of other cars you know they're not the top of the line model you know, threes and whys are there, but people could drop 100, 120K for cars, you know, more than, you know, a lot of other people. They're still making kind of the top 15 cars sold in the product. So there's people with a lot of disposable cash out there. And so the markets are there and we're seeing existing signals of high demand through those ticket sales. And so that's fantastic. The other side of it is, you know, I don't know, you know, is there a market for, Leo destination gas stations. I mean, Elon's kind of taken care of his own with his Starship. He's totally vertically integrating his whole activity to Mars. So the rest of it seems to be right now government driven. So yeah, I'm not even going to address that because like the government, like in the United States, right? Government spending on space is about 60 billion dollars. Right. And folks know that NASA's budget is about 20 billion dollars. So that means 40 billion is the non civil or the military aspect of it. You know, if you're working for the government, that's your market size. It's 60 billion bucks because they're the only customer. The rest of the three hundred and sixty billion dollars is satellites. And, you know, it's it's all the other stuff that currently exists and it's there. So looking for those new markets outside of government, outside of satellites is the real trick. And, and again, the only real signal we've seen so far is from the tourism and hopefully point to point
0: next. One more question for you, because it came in through our audience and it's it's a really okay. good one. And I think it, it it's parallel to this, what we were talking about. So staying on these new markets, new verticals, new trends, do you see different markets performing differently across broad geographical regions? And the sub piece to that is that based on what the students at ISU are interested in or want to study, is there a delineation or are they pretty much the same?
1: So I think there, let me start with the, do I see... Space adjacent verticals and markets performing differently. Yeah, you see emerging companies and companies that are in the process of starting their space industries. You see them with Earth observation and kind of the the basic stuff that will provide data from space that helps them, you know, improve the lives of their citizenry. I mean, this is the goal of every government is to. And you see that their pretty much
0: across the board, geographically.
1: I, I think you. I think you see that quite a bit in the more in the more. Advanced, advancing and advanced countries. You see launch vehicles. I mean, now you see China with human-attended um, uh, station. You see India moving in that direction. So that's kind of the next step. Europe has sort of taken you know, its time getting toward human-rated launches. And so through partnership, they've avoided having to develop that capability internally so far. And maybe that'll change, maybe not. But in turn, so that's kind of. The geographical differences i think is what you're seeing in terms of space adjacent verticals and markets performing differently hmm that's hard to say because i think right now it is all satellite you know markets that are performing well and i think that's kind of where it is so i, I guess i don't see a difference in that sense i mean again i'm separating the civil and the military from commercial and and so you know, I'm dying. You know, yeah, space tourism in the U.S. You see that? That's different so far. You know, we haven't seen that yet. But you see, I love the fact that we're seeing the copycat it's, it's, uh, technology applications in China now with hovering and you know soft landings, and a lot of people are trying to think of how to do that and coming up with hybrid solutions. This is such classic Clayton Christensen. This is classic by the book. They could have written the script, Clayton Christensen. It's it's so fun to watch these things play out in a way that totally is predicted you know, yeah. 30 years ago.
0: And especially if you look at the commercialization evolution, you mentioned aviation in the beginning, but also the cell phone industry space is very similar because it starts with really heavy government investment then tends toward commercialization and then becomes this established infrastructure that allows other industries, new ideas to come to play using it as a framework. And so That's I think right. we're starting to see that.
1: Well, and the problem with that is, okay, so humans love to put things into phases. So yeah. This is, we love to do that. And there is absolutely no reason why we have to go from phase one to phase two to phase three to phase four. We could absolutely go from phase three back to phase one. So it's, again, predicting the future based on the past is is dangerous. And so there's this is the fear that we're going to go back to phase one. Mm. New industries, it's very hard to say that. In terms of current research of how new industries emerge right now, it's very hard to say almost anything about how things happen. But one of the kind of general statements that is kind of true more often than not is the fact that industry emergence is preceded by strong government investment in R&D. And so this is kind of what you were talking about. There was a huge government investment and it took off commercially because there was a non-governmental partner, customer that was out there. And so we're waiting for that those large numbers of non-governmental customers to, to show up. And again, tourism, I can point to that one easily.
0: So hopefully we'll be able to create the conditions so we don't step back, but maybe we can skip a couple more steps ahead, which would be the eventual goal.
1: That's right. And, and, and how we understand the process that's underlying the change in the emergence is part of what the org theory folks do. They, you know, the, the the phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, that's totally possible. But there are other possible ways that change is being pushed forward. And so trying to understand which of those motors are working in what order, in what industry segment is called job security for org theorists in the yeah. space industry, because it changes all the time.
0: <laughs> that is very true. Ken, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time and expertise with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. And to our viewers, thank you so much for for listening in, for staying engaged, for sending all of your questions. We really do value your time and you are very much a part of what makes the vector, the vector. Please stay tuned for future conversations and please remember there's a place for everyone in the future space ecosystem. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.